Welcome to episode 54 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is one of the hosts of Chapo Trap House. Joining me from the greatest city in the world, the town so nice they named it twice, from New Yaw, welcome Will Meneker. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. What's going on? Well, we're talking about the god Paul Schrader. He's our subject for today. He's given us so much over his long career, and now at age 75, he's delivered what I think is one of his best films, his 25th film as a director, The Card Counter, starring Isaac... The Card Counter, starring Oscar Isaac. I almost said Isaac Hayes. (laughs) That's Escape from New York. (laughs) Will and I are going to talk about this film and about the man himself, one of the most underrated filmmakers in America. I think you agree, Will? Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll, we'll get into the reasons why, but uh, lots to say. And he's also the god of Facebook posting. He's like one of the only reasons why you should still be on Facebook, is to see Paul Schrader's uh, daily updates. Or you could just follow the Twitter account that uh, collates all of them for you. <laughs> That's true. I mean, this is a, this is a big problem with um, the card counter, or at least you know the marketing of the movie, is that a lot of people thought this would be a movie about counting cards. But it's not really about that. It's more about a guy who got kicked out of a celebrity Facebook poker group for spitting too many grim and brutal truths and being horny. <laughs> a friend of mine pointed out that, that what, what he loves about Schrader is that uh, he manages to keep all his insane uh, Facebook uh, beliefs out of his actual filmmaking. I think apparently he said like the hardest part of like doing promo for this movie is that like what is it like whoever produced the whatever the studio was was just like don't go on Facebook anymore don't say anything just just stop speaking and we'll we'll take care of the marketing of the movie. Yeah, we'll get into that. I have the exact quote that uh, made the people at Focus Features <laughs> jump out of their chairs <laughs> and immediately contact him. The Card Counter is a great jumping off point for two of the most important film concepts for me these days. And these are both concepts that you in particular have hugely influenced my thinking on, Will. I would like for you to explain to my listeners these two concepts, the first being movie mindset. Okay, movie mindset is sort of, um, uh, it's, it's, it's an arcane and uh, occult form of knowledge that um, can be cultivated in oneself um, through the act of watching movies. And now, like, it, it's, it's a little difficult. It's a little difficult to um, describe, like, how does one achieve movie mindset? Um, how does one um, uh, begin to better themselves through movies? And uh, the simplest way I can describe movie mindset is you achieve movie mindset by watching movies. And, I, I yeah, like, so if you just start there... If you got movies, you got movies you like, got movies you want to see, just watch them. Just, just spend, you could just, you know, watch one movie a day, watch two movies a day. You could watch a movie a week. You know, if you were watching movies, you were, are achieving movie mindset. But you have to be watching the correct movies. And it's just basically like, it, are you achieving movie mindset or not depends on the movies that you were taking in and how you were watching them. And the only arbiter of what counts as movie mindset and not movie mindset is me. So... <laughs> I hold all the keys to uh, self-betterment through movie watching. I was thinking about movie mindset a lot while I was watching The Card Counter. One of the ways that I interpret movie mindset as you describe it is understanding the world that you live in is so difficult by actually functioning in it. But to get a real sense of the planet that you live on, movies will be your friend and will guide you through it. 
Yeah, I mean, like I, I, that's like sort of like uh, I mean, this this was this is an idea developed after the fact. It's sort of like because once you achieve movie mindset, a lot of things will begin falling into place for you, um, and that like truths r- r- previously occluded will become. Um, will become clear. You will be. You will. You will cease to see through this veil darkly, and you will begin to see clearly the uh, the hidden truths of this reality we live in, which is that um, in in a sort of in a postmodern existence, in a media saturated and media mediated um, reality, um, movies are more real than reality. And that um, it is is only through movies that we understand the present, and that to a large degree, it's the only way we can understand the future. Because I, I, I strongly believe on a certain level, uh, all art, but movies in general, are sort of signals that are sent from the future that are broadcast into the past. That if your brain is vibrating on the correct movie mindset frequently, you can interpret the signs and wonders of our times to um, better understand the future, which is where we are all going to be living. Quoting Criswell is always going to get points with me, Will. <laughs> Here's an example of some movie mindset. So you're watching The Long Good Friday, which is one of the great films. And Absolutely. Bob Hoskins' character in that movie, his big plan to go legit is to take over the Docklands in London and, and rebuild them so that London can host the future Olympics. <laughs> that is the yeah. plot of The Long Good Friday, but that actually happened in the 2012 uh, Olympics in London. In, Would it have uh, happened without the Long Good Friday? I don't know. A big part of the uh, probably probably the most famous anime of all time, Akira, is that um, Tokyo hosted the 2020 Summer Olympics in the midst of social uh, utter social breakdown and apocalypse. And then the climax of that movie takes place in the dilapidated Summer Olympic Stadium. <laughs> so how do they know this in the late 80s? They well, they didn't know it, not consciously, but th- through uh, through through a proto form of movie mindset, just called being a good artist and making good movies. Uh, I think you were able to not consciously but subconsciously um, receive transmissions from a future reality that is that is seeking to um, imprint itself on the consciousness of the present. So we're going to go back to September tenth, two thousand and one. I went to a movie theater to watch a little movie called Mulholland Drive that afternoon. Wow, okay. So the next day when the planes hit the World Trade Center and everyone was freaking out and not knowing what's going on, I was like, "Uh, yeah, I saw Mulholland Drive yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, really, which one of those things are more memorable, you know? Because, I mean, I've I've forgotten a lot about 9-11. Did it happen? I don't know. What were those buildings? Not sure. Uh, But Mulholland Drive, I'll never forget that movie. I'll never forget what's behind Winky's Diner. Yeah, like the the going behind Winky's Diner was basically like the the South Tower getting hit for a lot of people. Yeah, because it it conveys an emotional truth that um you know in the present moment you're not fully aware of or you don't have the the frame of reference to truly process. But it is only through as um as as events uh, as as a totally predetermined events. By the way, if we're getting into Paul Schrader's Calvinist beliefs, it's yeah. only through a course of Totally predetermined and inalterable, inalterable events uh, playing themselves out. Do we begin to understand the messages that were once being transmitted to us through movies and then interpreted uh, through uh, movie mindset, trademark, Wilmenniker, all uh, rights and properties <laughs> held in perpetuity? I'll, I'll add the, uh, bo- the legal boilerplate to the <laughs> yeah. uh, show description. 
The other major um, concept of, of enjoying cinema to its purest, which I consider you one of the practitioners of, is the dude's rock concept. Like, it's an actual genre of film. I mean, it's 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 a broad genre. I mean, like a lot, you can interpret like you know basically any movie in which uh, uh, men are enjoying each other's company and having fun as a dudes rock movie. But you know, if, if if we're to you know dudes rock and movie mindset are very much intertwined. It's very hard to do one without the other. They both necessarily inform uh, inform each other to form a holistic sense of uh, well being for the modern man in the twenty first century. But you know, I mean, I, I you know, cutting uh, aside, it's like I don't know. Watching movies with your friends and watching movies like, you know, is a big part of like, you know, my experience growing up and having friends and just, you know, becoming a, a teenager to a young man to a, you know, a fully fledged dude, you know, movies form the texture of that. And like, you know, similar to what I was, you know, uh, saying about the future provides sort of a, I don't know, like a, a template for like how, how you how you develop into the, the person that you are. And I just think, you know, dudes rock as a, sort of a half-joking, sort of uh, a form of a, a positive, positive masculinity, you know, like where it's just like, yeah, like you can, you, being, being a dude, being a guy, what's better than that? And what's better than being a, a guy among dudes watching movies about very much the same thing? One important uh, way that I like to describe Dudes Rock is that men are often in this world discouraged from being friends with the people they should be friends with. Yeah. And in a Dudes Rock movie, two men can become better men thanks to their friendship. A friendship yeah, yeah. That, is, uh, that is going to improve both their lives. A purpose that they can finally have that's so difficult to put together by yourself but is so much easier with your dude. Yeah, absolutely. And Think about... Like- Think about, not to interrupt you, but think about The Killer, the John Woo film, which is one of the great dudes rock movies. Those guys spend like two-thirds of the movie trying to get each other. One's on the side of the law. One is a criminal. He's an assassin. Eventually, when they meet, they kind of become uh, respectful of one another, and that respect turns into a friendship and finally into love. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, The Killer is a good example. I mean, a big part of uh, a dude's rocking is, of course, um, homoerotic subtext. Um, one doesn't necessarily need to have it for to, to rock, but um, it certainly helps. It's, it's an added bonus. Paul Schrader is one of the great dude's rock filmmakers. One of the key works in his uh, filmography is his screenplay for Rolling Thunder, which is one of the ultimate dudes rock movies. <laughs> William Devane uh, gets, uh, comes back from Vietnam, shattered by the experience, along with his friend Tommy Lee Jones, who's not really in the movie all that much. Devane uh, wins all these coins. Uh, <laughs> he wins like $2,000 in gold coins. It's one of the like smallest stakes I've seen in a movie for what happens to him. These guys decide to get the money that they just gave to William Devane. So they kill his family. They kill his family and they put his hand through a uh, garbage. <laughs> what's that kitchen garbage disposal machine? Yeah, they, they fuck him up pretty bad. <laughs> they destroy his hand and he winds up getting a hook for a hand. And when he finally figures out where the guys are that uh, killed his family, he just goes to Tommy Lee Jones and says, I found them, the men who killed my family. Tommy Lee Jones just looks at him and says, I'll just go get my gear and fills up his bag with guns. And the two of them drive down to Juarez, Mexico to destroy these people. Yeah. And they kill like a dozen people in like a cat house in, in Juarez. Yeah. But there's no talking Tommy Lee Jones into it. He just, te- <laughs> yeah. that's what, that is what a true friend is. 
There's that old saying that a friend will help you move, but a true friend will help you move a corpse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, I mean, you bring up Rolling Thunder. I mean, that's, that's straight. That was his first movie, right? I mean, his first movie directed. Yakuza was the first screenplay that he got made, right? Yeah. He didn't direct um, Rolling Thunder. Oh, he wrote the screenplay. Uh, oh, he wrote and the screenplay. And it came out at one year after Taxi Driver, which, okay, of but course, it is, is it, pure zeitgeist. It, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the same movie as Taxi Driver. It's about a, it's yeah. about a Vietnam vet who's... Um, you know, badly traumatized by the war. Um, and it's about like, you know, sort of like, how, how does one be a man in this kind of like post-Vietnam context? And I think like it, like Taxi Driver, it sets the template in motion for like a lot of his movies, including The Card Counter, up until the very present moment, which is like his movies are focused on acts of suicidal vainglory like like acts of sort of like vainglorious self-negation as a way of like dealing with the it's just sort of intractable like evils and irresolvable dilemmas of like the modern world as 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 it regards being a man in America there's a storm brewing in this man they took his arm they took his family and his soul his anger is building and it's going to explode now from Paul Schrader the author of Taxi Driver, comes a new and shattering film about a man poised on the brink of violence. Ruling Thunder, starring William Devane as Charles Rain. He has a purpose. He has a plan. It's only a matter of time. The other key dude's rock work of Schrader's is Blue Collar. That was his directorial debut. That is one of the greatest depictions of friendship I think there is. Well, it's also about how capitalism makes dudes rocking impossible, or yes. it sets it sets dudes against one another um, uh, through 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 you know uh, uh, money and hierarchy and um, you know like economic necessity and and uh, the way that uh, labor and management are not necessarily uh, diametrically opposed to one another. That labor can be corrupt and that management. Uh, can use the powers of labor to keep labor in its place. Yeah. It's a very Marxist film. It's a movie that actually Schrader kind of disowns now, which is too bad. Really? Yeah. He's not so crazy about it. Very apologetic um, uh, commentary track for Blue Collar where he... You remember that scene in Blue Collar where Richard Pryor has the um, the tax guy comes by to see his house and he's yeah, yeah. listed all these dependents? Schrader now says that that scene is something he regrets because it sort of does the joke about the black people, uh, you know, having too many dependents and lying and stuff like that. I don't think he has anything to apologize for because it's a dark uh, comedy drama and Pryor is so good in that scene. I don't know what he has to be squeamish about. Uh, maybe he should apologize for that movie. Um, uh, he should apologize for that movie, including in it like one of the best tactics for cheating on your wife which is when Harvey Keitel tells her that he left the gas station unlocked and he needs to go lock it up in the middle of the night. And then he just goes to Yafet Koto's house to party with him and Richard Pryor and three, three ladies of the evening and just sniff some blow and then come back at like seven in the morning being like, yeah, I got hung up at work. You know, sorry, it's my second job. I, I regret to inform you they were using real cocaine in that scene. <laughs> no way. Yeah. <laughs> 
And the other amazing thing about uh, what a great dude's rock achievement uh, Blue Collar is, is that Keitel, Kodo, and Richard Pryor hated each other's guts the entire time <laughs> really? they were working. <laughs> well, they we hated went. each other so much. <laughs> they were all under the impression that they were the star of the movie, and they were discovering on the set that they weren't. <laughs> and they uh, had huge fights and screaming matches and like freaking out on Schrader. Um, you would not know it from watching the movie. They look so like, like great the, buds. So like at the very end of the movie, when Keitel and Pryor get into it, they like finally like break down and just attack each other on the floor of the factory. Like this is, you feel some realism in that moment. Yeah. Another uh, dude's rock movie uh, that Schrader did was uh, autofocus. Oh my God. Yes. Oh, that, that, that movie is, uh, there, there has been no, no more searing or honest depiction of like male sexuality than in that movie. Like, uh, very, very few directors would come close to touching the 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 grim and brutal truth of of of, of just sort of like uh, just uh, yeah, just male male sexuality and friendship like that movie does. That is like new lows, new lows in homoerotic denial of <laughs> yeah. superhero guys. <laughs> yeah. It's a group grope, Bob. It's a group grope. I couldn't believe what I was seeing when they were both sitting on the couch jacking off next yeah, to each other. Yeah, it's just such a dark movie. Were it's they holding so hands during that scene I, too? God, God, I don't I don't think so, but like it just happens so, so it just happens. It's like it's like getting into a warm bath. It just happens and then they're just there. You're with your boy watching yourself have sex with other people on on video and then just jacking off. Uh, I mean, like, Autofocus is such a disturbing movie because it's like, it's so hard to pinpoint, like, at what, po- at what point in that movie does Bob Crane completely lose his mind? Like, at what point does he truly, like, slide off the rails on an inexorable descent to hell? Because it's really hard to say when. Like, it just, it, it all happens so good. Gra- I mean, it doesn't happen gradually, but, like, you're sort of there with him. You're like, yeah, just these are the ways in which men were, like, responding to the sexual revolution and, like, uh, like sort of discovering those themselves, uh, you know, sexually or um, uh, responding to these new opportunities in the culture to sort of, um, yeah, like express one's sexuality in a sort of a tech and what was advertised as like a freer way. But like, man, man, oh man, the road to hell is paved with, I don't know, not good intentions, but certainly understandable ones. And this giant gulf that's growing and growing between Bob. Crane's public persona and his private life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like this is all happening while he's on Hogan's Heroes, right? Yeah. And like, what's like that? That like a- after he gets done with Hogan's Heroes, and it's like the real, the really dark, like last third of the movie, and he's doing like dinner theater, and they keep coming back to that line from this like cheesy murder mystery dinner theater th- show he's doing, where he's like, the he's like the police. I've got things to hide. And they, like, they, 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 they show him say that line like two or three times, and it's so fucking good. We'll get into it when we get into the card counter, but I would include Card Counter as a dude's rock movie. Even though it's a character study about, you know, God's lonely man, Schrader's favorite subject, there's major dude's rock content in this movie and the boy that he takes under his wing. So Schrader, the first thing we have to say about him is that He's an auteur. And I want to talk a little bit about the auteur theory, the aspect of the auteur theory that I like the most, which is the idea that it, that an auteur is a visual stylist who keeps making the same movie over and over again in terms of their own personal style. And that how you track the ev- evolution of an auteur as an artist is how they tell this story over and over again as they get older. No, I mean, yeah, like I said, like the card counter is in a lot of ways like – 
kind of the same movie as First Reformed, but First Reformed is kind of the same movie as Rolling Thunder. Like it just like like he cycles like yeah you're like it's just he is elaborating on the same theme over and over again in his movies, but not not in a way that's like boring or hack. It's like th- this is his life's like interest and like this is what uh, like uh, this 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 is the. Uh, this is this is like the the scalpel with which he like uses to like dissect the the world as he sees it, and like I said, it is about yeah like lonely men, um, and this kind of uh, uh, quite often getting obsessed with a much younger blonde woman, or in the case of Mishima, just the emperor of Japan, <laughs> but you you can you can sub in the the inciting incident, but it's usually on behalf of a much younger blonde woman or the emperor of Japan, but it usually leads to, like I said, it culminates with like an act of a spectacular act of violence and like sort of a, a grand suicidal gesture on, on the, that is mostly impotent. And like, that's the thing that like really strikes me about his movies. Like you see it in right, right there in rolling thunder. I mean, like (laughs) the guy gets his wife's lover to fucking tie him up. Like they did at the Hanaway Hilton to just show him what it was like in a way that like he's dominating him, but like his wife is leaving him for this guy. It's a lot of psychology going on there, but like, I think his movies are about rage at the rotten, like the morally and spiritually diseased state of the world. But ultimately like, like you're like the impotence and like the action that you have to, it's like, it's sort of if you do nothing, like what does that make you? But like the the the, the acts that these men are compelled to do are ultimately ones of like impotence and are ultimately like suicidal gestures, basically, or like either either completed in the case of Mishima or this kind of like halfway like off ramp and to find a way to kill yourself without actually doing it. And and speaking of both Mishima and Rolling Thunder, again there are other themes that carry over into the card counter. Uh, that are the ideas of ritualized death and ritualized torture. Like in Rolling Thunder, uh, he's getting his wife's lover to actually like put him in a stress position, which is what we see a lot happening uh, in the card counter in Abu Ghraib. Yeah. And and like we were, we were talking a little bit before we got on about, uh, about hardcore and like his sort of Dutch Calvinist roots and like a sort of a big tenant of the Calvinist faith is both like predetermination, but also the acceptance of the total depravity of mankind, the total inalterable and irredeemable depravity of human beings. And I think for Schrader, it's like, I mean, you can sort of like extend that one thing further to uh, America itself. Like, like America is, is, is diseased and evil. And like, it's just, there's ultimately no changing it. And like what it leads people to are these kind of like, uh, desperate but ultimately f- futile acts of uh, vengeance or or violence or just um, an, an explosion of something against like the not just like the vague forces that are making America evil, but like the actual people who have names and addresses who are doing it. That's a good point, and um, you know there's a sort of Old Testament level of judgment towards the depravity of man that Schrader. Uh, fixates on in Taxi Driver and especially in Hardcore. But what I found even more chilling about the way that he deals with these things now is that this stuff is actually part of our world now. The First Reformed is a movie about a man uh, in, a, in a crisis of conscience and of faith when he has to deal with the fact that like the earth is degrading and falling apart and God is not doing anything about it. And that even the role that he plays in society 
is ornamental, that he's the, the priest of a church that is basically a tourist attraction. He is basically, uh, <laughs> he's kind of blackpilled by this, uh, one of his, the parishioners. It's a, a pregnant woman whose husband doesn't want her to have the baby because he's an environmental activist and he feels that it's wrong to bring a child into this world. And when the Ethan Hawke character speaks to him about that and even reveals his own loss and his own uh, removal of children from the world in his own life, the guy's right. And it really starts to like sink in on his brain. Like th this guy is actually correct about the things that he's angry about. And he winds up actually like going up against uh, his own church because the, the first reformed church is this symbolic church that played a role in the underground railroad. But it's basically underwritten by this th mega church called the Abundant Life Church, which in itself is one of the many things in the portfolio of this complete monster who's actually <laughs> an environmental polluter. And that like the a church Coke, is a Coke brother, essentially. Yeah. And that the church is uh, the sort of thing that he can hold up as a hostage if he ever got in trouble for his crimes to say, what do you mean I'm a terrible person? Look at this church that I uh, support. I was very struck by that, the dialogue between Ethan Hawke and the uh, the young man who, um, it, you know, it doesn't want to have a child because of, you know, how apocalyptic, like the apocalyptic terms in which he sees the world. And Ethan Hawke reveals that, like, I mean, again, the specter of the war on terror and the Iraq war is really a pall that is over all of his most recent films. And he's, I think mm -hmm. he's really one of the only like contemporary American filmmakers that goes right at it. Like yeah. he goes, like he goes straight for the throat about like the, the Iraq and the war on terror. And as we, as we'll see in the card counter, Abu Ghraib, which comes up in a bunch of his other movies as well. Um, but when he says, he's like, eh, like if he's like, if you, if you think the tragedy of like bringing a child into this world is bad, like, Try the tragedy of having brought one into this world and then living through their own living through their death, and like you know his 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 kid his son died in the war in Iraq, and like you know that that like his his absolute anger and rage over that, but like he doesn't have a word he doesn't have a really have a way to put it or like a person to project it on until this meeting until he mm -hmm. starts thinking along these lines and be you know be crosses paths with this like Coke brother character. Yeah, he's I I found that. That actor, he's on screen uh, for maybe about two or three minutes in the whole movie, but he chilled my blood. He was so scary and so believable as the kind <laughs> yeah, of person absolutely. who give two shits about anything. And um, so the question is, will God forgive us in that film? The answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I loved also the irony as well of uh, the Ethan Hawke character basically becoming a suicide bomber. Yep. I mean, that, that's why God won't forgive him, is because clearly he wanted him to go carry, carry out martyrdom operations against Charles and David Koch, <laughs> or whichever one of them is still alive. I don't know. How did you interpret the ending of First Reformed, Will? Like, that's an incredible ending. I, 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 I don't really know, actually. Like, I, I, would, I would have to watch it again, but I, I was, I didn't, I mean, I love the movie. I, I still do. I think it's probably his, one of his best. But I didn't quite know how to like. I I, I know what I really wanted to see, which is him <laughs> set off that suicide vest. <laughs> but I understand like why that's not the case, and I think it's like 
it's almost like his is you know in like Garden of Gethsemane moment where he chooses yeah. to have the cup taken away from him, and yeah. that he chooses to to live you know at, like as a man with Amanda Seyfried and like maybe be a father to this child. I read a very interesting interview with Schrader where he sort of clarified my my suspicions about the ending. Originally, they showed the Amanda Seyfried character walking into the room as he's about to drink the bleach. They decided to just cut to her being there. And there's a suggestion that he did drink the bleach and that she's the vision of God. She's she's God's answer to his question. He's now blown himself up in a, in, a, in a spiritual way. He's died. And that's heaven for him, is to be with her. I think that's credible. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely see that. But I love that he left it to your interpretation. It, like, some people were like, weird enough for you when they left the theater. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, he, like, so, and that's why uh, in the scenes earlier where they're knocking on the door and they're like, are you coming or not? Like, they're holding up the ceremony for him. It's because he killed himself. And that's a vision from the afterlife. The last couple of minutes of the movie is not real. And then also, like, in, in, in a religious sense, like, the, you know, the answer to the question is that, like, yes, like, humanity is depraved. We are doomed. We are not forgiven. But we still have no choice but to try and to, like, continue on. And, like, the only way we really can have any hope of, you know, affecting the future is by continuing this tragedy and, like, you know, by having children and hoping for the best. Well, you know, this is the conundrum, like the people that are like, I don't want to bring a child into this world. They're the actual people that should be thinking about having children, because there are so many people who have children who don't give a fuck about the world. Yeah. Like, that's the conundrum, right? Like, the people that are actually thinking about the future come to the conclusion that it's not right to bring a child into this world. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like a pretty bad situation. My and my notes I wrote that first reformed was diary of a based country priest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I really liked the scene with uh, Cedric the Entertainer, where he's like having this big spiritual like wrestling match with him, and then the Cedric just shuts it down by saying like. This is uh, you run a tourist shop. <laughs> like you're not. No, but and and also what Cedric the Entertainer says to him in that scene is he's like he quotes to him like you know fucking uh, from from Genesis. He's like you know like God has sent a flood before and he'll send one again. Yeah. Like, global warming, the end of the world, like the end of human civilization. It's nothing new. It's old news to God, and like that's just like that's just what he does. Like it's just ours is not. We we, we don't ask why. Like this uh, this has happened before, and it's like yeah, like you should expect it. Not, not be, like, terrified of it. Just to get back a little bit to the auteur theory stuff with Schrader, is that he keeps making the same movie over and over again uh, with these various... Uh, there's two movies that basically are the guideposts for his career in many ways. Pickpocket by Robert Bresson and mm-hmm. his own screenplay for Taxi Driver. He's basically remade Pickpocket four times. American Gigolo, Patty Hearst, Light Sleeper and The Card Counter all end with a man in jail holding hands with the woman. Right. Each film ends that way. And Pickpocket is a movie about a petty thief who gets, uh, he's a pickpocket, but he gets mixed up with a, a, a racket of professional pickpockets. And he winds up meeting a girl who is has a child with a man who she doesn't actually want to be with. And he discovers when he's finally picked up again for for petty theft and put in jail that he loves her 
And the movie ends with the realization of that love. And Light Sleeper, I don't know if you got a chance to see. I have seen Light Sleeper. It does the exact same ending as Pickpocket. Yeah, with him and with Willem Dafoe and Susan Sarandon in jail at the end. Let's talk about Light Sleeper a little bit before we get into the card counter. I had never seen it before, and I watched it for this podcast, and I think it's an incredible movie. Oh, it's fantastic. I read a funny story that Defoe wanted to know because uh, Schrader had done Taxi Driver and then he did American Gigolo, but he wanted to know why this movie wasn't named after the profession of the protagonist. <laughs> Schrader said, nobody wants to watch a movie called Drug Dealer. <laughs> American Cocaine Man. American Coke Guy. American I've Got a Guy. Can you quickly describe what's going on in Light Sleeper? Well, it's like a, a Willem Dafoe is like, you know, essentially he's he's a guy. He's the guy you call. It's like 80s New York. I mean, he's just like he's a runner for Susan Sarandon. And he's just like, you know, uh, like he's a cocaine dealer. Um, and it's like I, I haven't seen in a while, but like yeah, it's like uh, he gets involved with um, like a former girlfriend. Who, and then there's like uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Victor Garber is this like very sinister guy who gets involved with her as well. Um, uh, it's just like 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 his like this 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 old flame of his coming back into his life like leads him to this kind of existential crisis and then a terrible tragedy. And then it's about like you know like once again like you know what what is a man in America in the 21st century like is it your profession is it your job like I mean it's this feeling of being like of being trapped and like not really knowing how to get out of it or or what to do or who you are I mean like I, I think that's kind of what's going on in Light Sleeper. And this is another film that is about the man in the room, the man writing his diary. All of these movies that Schrader does about the lonely man in the room, we're given access to his inner thoughts. We're allowed to read his diary. We hear his voice as he's writing in the diary. There's a wonderful line at the very beginning of Light Sleeper where Defoe's voiceover says, when a dealer starts keeping a diary, it's time to quit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we're dropped into this loner's world, this transitory existence that's powered by transactions. He's being driven around New York all night, every day, making these deals and and the movie has him dealing 19 grams to every uh customer because 19 is carrying and 20 was dealing in the laws in the, in the state at the time so we get to see him actually engaging with some of his clients and we can also see that some of his clients should have stopped doing coke a long time ago but we also get a sense that the defoe character and the susan sarandon character are uh older people in a young man's game at the risk of this podcast turning into an all steely dan podcast <laughs> there's a real uh glamour profession vibe to the situation that john's in now these are people who used to do drugs who have now turned into drug dealers and are still drug dealers even though they're in their like 40s at this point and also like De defoe and his former lover like they were like they considered themselves you know artists they were like yes. you know they were on the new york the downtown scene uh, musicians painters whatever i forget i forget what it was in in the movie but yeah like that never panned out but what did is facilitating the drug use of other cool downtown people but they all used to be the same age. And now these people are all older and all their clients are younger. There's an amazing scene where uh, briefly we see David Spade as this uh, one of his clients who uh, Defoe has to sit around and listen to talk <laughs> while, he's, while he's coking himself up. And Schrader said that that actually is based on him because when he was, uh, you know, first doing drugs when he was a young man uh, – coming out of his Calvinist, minimalist upbringing and then suddenly immersing himself in film and drugs and, you know, 
the lifestyle. He said that he used to buy drugs so that he had someone to talk to about God with. <laughs> that's that's the last yeah, that's the last conversation you should be having yacked up with your drug dealer. With your drug dealer. That's probably how Mike Lindell got an intervention from his fucking coke guys. He's probably talking about God one too many times. Um, but uh so yeah, it's the early 90s and it feels kind of like the 70s and the 80s are over and he's in this scene that is less glamorous and even Susan Sarandon mentions at one point that crack basically took away all of the market that they used to be a part of. So like, what are they even doing still in this world? Sarandon makes the decision to move into cosmetics, which pretty much cuts John, the Willem Dafoe character, out of a, an existence, out of a purpose. Like, what's he supposed to do? Go into go into cosmetics, <laughs> but yeah, it's a great film. But uh, the, I read something very sad that when Schrader showed the film to Mike Medavoy, who was a major agent and film producer, when he was trying to find a distributor for Light Sleeper, he had a contractual option to watch the movie in case he wanted to release it. And he told uh, Schrader afterwards, he said, "Paul, this is a great film, but we don't make these kinds of movies anymore." Well, I mean, we get right back to his his fucking his absolute rage at like <laughs> at the state of the world and the people who run it. And like, what is one to do other than, I don't know, like drink bleach or strap on the fucking suicide vest? And, and you know, uh, Schrader had sort of these wilderness years for a while. Like, did you ever see his Exorcist movie? Yeah. Did you give that one a chance? Yeah, it's it's not great. It's it's <laughs> it's pretty. Uh, it was. Yeah, it was a. Yeah, he, he did have a he did have some wilderness. He had some he had some lean years for a while. You've seen The Walker. Can you tell actually, us a little about that one? Uh, the Walker uh, was very good, actually. I would highly recommend it. It makes a very interesting, you know, like like all his movies. I think it makes an interesting um, companion piece to the Card Counter because The Walker uh, stars Woody Harrelson. As uh, again, it's a movie where like the title of the movie is the job, and his job is like he occupies this. Not really a job. It's more of his like social position. Is he oper- He occupies this odd space and contemporary of the time Bush administration era DC as being this sort of very uh, cultured gay Southern man who, uh, you know, fills the role of Walker or sort of a non-sexual escort to these, the wives of powerful men in DC who like, they don't want to, they don't want to go to the latest charity gala. They, they, they've checked out of the marriage years ago, but they keep things up for appearances so that Woody Harrelson is like, he plays bridge with these ladies. He takes them to the opera. He takes them to like social functions and gathering. He's just there to be the man on the arm of an, of an, of an older lady, an older and powerful and wealthy woman. And and it's like because of his sexuality, he's like he's sort of not a threat, but he's also not taken seriously by anyone either. And then of course, like you know, he gets involved in a like a, a murder and a conspiracy involving the husband of one of these women. But interestingly, in the movie, um, Woody Harrelson's uh, his his ex or like his his current or former lover, I don't quite remember what, is an artist who's like you know like also a an out gay man and an artist. And Woody Harrelson is he's not like in the closet, but he is a sort of very conservative, a very conservative kind of like Southern gay gentleman. And his his younger boyfriend is a visual artist who is doing 
like a, a a a a gallery show about Abu Ghraib, and all the images that he's um, like painting or or printing are from the Abu Ghraib photos. And there's a scene where um, he shows Woody Harrelson his work, or he's in his studio, and Woody Harrelson is very offended by it, and he's like, "This is too, this is too controversial. You know, you shouldn't show people like things that are that ugly." But like once again, like. Is a movie about D.C. and the Bush era. It's about power in Washington, D.C. And this man who, once again, is like, what's his purpose? How does he fit into this? Like, he's not taken seriously by anyone, but, like, he he winds up getting involved and getting more involved than he'd like. But underneath it all is the, is the specter of, like, real evil in America. Like, the real, like, evil of, like, not just, like, as I said, in some sort of vague religious sense, but in a very real sense of, like, human beings who have, like, social security numbers and, like, mail they receive. This leads us right over to the card counter because the card counter is specifically... uh, You wouldn't know it from the marketing, (laughs) but it's specifically about... (laughs) I would would have loved if they had done honest marketing for the card counter. What a a fucking anchor around the neck of Focus Features that would have been. (laughs) Focus Features has wisely decided to play up the card game uh, stuff, right? Like (laughs) all the, the... the, they are doing a marketing campaign with the various characters uh, of the movie. You know, those yeah, yeah. where they have four or five uh, one sheets with the various characters. Too bad there's no Willem Dafoe one, though. <laughs> as, as Major Gordo. The, <laughs> Fucking piece of work. Yeah, the, the, the John Yu figure. I mean, actually, he's like, John Yu never got his hands personally dirty. But let's just say I was thinking a lot about John Yu's name and address after I saw the card counter. Definitely. There's even a sort of Google Earth joke, a uh, Google Maps joke, oh, right, yeah. where we get to see the house. <laughs> Wish you were here. <laughs> um, so I went in blind to see this movie. I just heard, new Schrader movie's excellent. Uh, go see it. So I was like, good enough for me. I hadn't been to a movie theater since I saw Uncut Gems in uh, December of 2019. Wow, so, so this is your first movie theater this experience? Was my first movie wow. to, this was my first trip back to the cinemas. And I couldn't have picked what a, a special better, one, yeah. But no, I couldn't have picked a better movie to be reintroduced to the beautiful Magic Lantern. The card counter, I knew I was in good hands right off the top with the opening credits. It's against a green felt background of the of the uh, poker table, and you see the credits laid out in classical Hollywood style. But you, but what, the first time where I was just struck by the the the. The hardships that a man like Schrader has getting work finished at this point. There were about 14 executive producers credited. Yeah. He had to stop production on the card counter five days before they were done because of the virus. We'll get to the Facebook post that he wrote about that later. But uh, he was able to to cobble together uh, finishing money to actually finally finish the movie. I don't see any stitches, though. And when I watch the film, I don't see a very obvious they had to shoot this nine months later moment in the movie. It's all done very well. But I realized when I saw 14 names in the executive producer credits that these were all the people that helped rescue Schrader. Including Scorsese. Right off the top, the god. Yeah. There is a weight a man can accrue. This is where all the good stuff happens. The weight created by his past actions. It is a weight which can never be removed. All in. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. You need someone to stake you. That's what you do, you run a stable. 
I'm always looking for a good thoroughbred. <laughs> the card counter. Um, can you give us a brief precise of what this movie's about? Well, I mean, like, okay, so it, it, it's about essentially Oscar Isaac is a man who, like, once again, he's like, he's a, 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 a like, a, an island unto himself. He is a lonely man, un, like, unmoored from any kind of, like, social connection or purpose. And we're introduced to him as he sort of goes from casino to casino. Um, get, like, he's counting cards, but, like, he makes it clear that, like, yeah, they'll bounce you if you win too much, but as long as you keep your goals modest and win, like, seven, eight hundred dollars, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll leave you alone. So, he, like, he's just going, like, he's just traveling the country, living in motel room to motel room, going from casino to casino, playing cards, and, like, just eking out, an ex- like, a, a bare existence through his skill at being a very good gambler. But, like, I mean, the thing about this, is that like what he says is really going on here is that like he's like you know someone says like you know why do you play cards like you know 700 hands of cards a week or something like that and he's like because it fills the time it passes the time and one of the first things you see about him in the motels he lives in is when he first goes into a motel he like meticulously removes any sort of framed artwork or any sort of like anything specific to this in a specific in a motel room kind of sense he removes it and covers every piece of furniture with these like white sheets that he keeps with them and ties them off with like you know sort of uh, packing packing twine so that like he recreates for himself in every room he's in this institutionalized like prison feel and you learn very early on in the movie within like I think the first minute or two that he is coming off an eight and a half year stretch in jail little by little the movie reveals that he was in jail he was in military prison for eight years because essentially he was one of the one of the grunts in the in the Abu Ghraib photos like torturing prisoners in Abu Ghraib prison and that's what he went to jail for and the movie is about how through, through cards, like through through games games of chance, but also like most of the movies actually about poker. It's it's this like it is the entryway into this idea of like interrogate interrogating another person, knowing what's in their soul, um, and and with that the idea of debt and weight. Like there's a, there's a part where he talks about like if you're a professional gambler and you get staked by like a, a stable where like you know some a, a money backer will will you know will give you money to enter tournaments and if you win you split it with them but if you lose like you didn't lose your own money but what you have get instead is now debt which is called the weight and the movie is about his sort of moral weight of him his continued punishment of himself for the horrible torture that he was not just complicit in but like actively carried out on behalf of Willem Dafoe's character Major John Gordo who was very importantly a civilian contractor hired by the military to uh, teach torture techniques to soldiers at Abu Ghraib. But because he was a private contractor, he can't be held liable for crimes committed outside of America. So when the Abu Ghraib thing happens, as was the case in real life, all the people who were the architects of it, who gave the orders and taught these poor fucking assholes how to torture and break human beings, um, they skated off scot-free. They're living great lives now. And the people who did it and like followed their lead are the ones who ended up with jail sentences. So the movie is about this, this like his attempt to punish himself and then the chance that he might be able to forgive himself for what he did. The name that he goes by as the uh, card counter is William Tell who, of course, is the famous man who shot an arrow into an apple on top of someone's head. His son's head. On his son's head. 
he happens upon this convention in a hotel for a global security conference that's going on. I took note of the uh, Major John Gordo's subject of his keynote address, recent developments in interrogation and truthfulness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so like that double speak truthfulness. He's a fucking liar. Yeah. And he's a, he's an actual war criminal who got away with it. And it's at this point that one of the most spectacular things I've seen in a movie in a long time, the nightmare that William yeah. Tell experiences. The, the absolute, Let's talk about that. It's, it's, I mean, like, if you've seen the movie, it is the most memorable scene in the movie. It is the, like, actual portrayal of Oscar Isaac's memories of Abu Ghraib prison. And it's, it's shot in this horrific, like, fisheye lens in which, like, the periphery of, this, of the frame melts to the side so you were like always focused in this kind of like tunnel vision as like as as colors and shapes and images sort of like melt away around you and it's this long tracking shot that takes you through the like an Abu Ghraib cell block as just like you know sort of in the periphery of your vision you see you know uh, you see like broken human bodies. You see people being tortured, degraded, uh, beaten. Everything is covered in shit and blood. And it is just like a pure, pure vision of hell. It is a pure vision of like Dante's Inferno. It's, yeah, Hieronymus Bosch levels of like, of horror. And shot in this, yeah, heavily distorted fisheye effect. And I, I realized that it almost looks like you're supposed to wear a special headset to be able to see it normally. And in a way, you are. You have to have the military mindset to be able to uh, look at that as anything but grotesque. Yeah. And like, and one of the things Oscar Isaac talks about is like, he's like, you know, I mean, one of the first lines he says in voiceover in the movie is that like, I never thought I'd be the kind of guy who could like adapt to being in prison. Or that I could like find myself like you know uh, sort of surrendering or fitting in 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 that kind of like institutionalized you know it, you know uh, incarceration. But also, I mean, he was also not a guy who imagined himself being the kind of guy who could torture another person for no reason or break another human being on someone else's orders. And what he finds is, lo and behold, yeah, I'm that I'm that person too. I could do that. And what he says is that, like, you know, when you're doing it and you're seeing and feeling it and smelling it every day, the only way to get through it is just to ride it and just yeah. embrace the absurdity and insanity of it and, like, and just get through it. And then, of course, like, he gets through it, but then he has to go in jail and then he has to live with himself for the rest of his life. And the movie is about how he lives with himself because, obviously, you can only push it away for so long. And to me, the most... the, the the most memorable and the most searing part of the movie is when Oscar Isaac finally tells uh, Kirk the uh, well, we can get into the, the character he meets that like kicks off this whole kind of uh, like like odyssey or like the, the, this whole plan or, or change in his life. Uh, he finally like uh, he finally tells him like he's like you want to know what it was like, and then he finally sells, he finally tells it to him, and it's so astonishing because like the movie essentially takes place in either casinos which are like have a lot of lights and colors, but like have in, in, in a certain way are every bit as like sterile and bland as every other room that's shown in the movie, which is either his intentionally like denuded motel rooms, which are meant to look like a fucking prison cell, or I'll never forget the conversation that he has with Kirk where he tells him what Abu Ghraib was actually like takes place in this utterly fucking, <laughs> this utterly bland fucking like uh, just you know, uh, like uh, sort of nu nutrition hub for, uh, you 
know, like at some strip mall called like the something like the 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 cook and chat or like the yeah. chat and eat or something. Yeah. It's like it's this called like, like the chat and eat or something. The chat, chat and, and eat and the chat like, and chew. It's called it's the chat and chew. Chat and chew and like every room in in this movie other than the casinos essentially look like a prison cell. And it is just like the the absolute kind of like bland monotony of like contemporary American life. But in, in this scene, it's just like, it's just Oscar Isaac. And as he's talking, the camera slowly zooms in on him. And I got to say, just as an aside here, Oscar Isaac, I mean, when I first saw Inside Lewin Davis, I was like, this guy is the absolute truth. Like, this is like, that, that, that was one of the best performances I've seen. I've never seen this guy before, never heard yeah. of him. I was like, holy shit, Oscar Isaac is that guy. And then he had a long period of like movie after movie where I was just like, fuck, man, like, wh- where's that, where that Oscar Isaac that I saw on Inside Lewin Davis? This yeah. movie, he is astonishing. Like, it just, it, yeah. it, it brought me right back. Like, it's just like, to totally forgive all the movies of his that I saw that I did not like, or I thought he was. I was like, "What are you doing here?" This just like uh, where, where's that? Where, where's that? Where's that fucking talent that I saw in Inside Inside Lou and Davis? But he is so good in this movie, and that scene where he just talks about like the first thing he tells him about what Abu Ghraib was like is he's like, "You have to understand the smell, the smell of like gas, shit, blood, sweat, smoke." like everything and it's just that it like it's it's just always there and it, you never escape it and it's just it's it's a moment that that's, that's so searing and so fucking memorable and like that's the other thing like like the dialogue between Ethan Hawke and the young man at the beginning of First Reformed Schrader as a writer and a director is better than almost anyone I can think about of imbuing scenes of just dialogue or just monologue with such intensity and such just like a, a riveting power to it that like is really unforgettable I saw that movie called A Most Violent Year a few years ago. Should be called was, a fucking a most boring movie. I called it a slightly a, a, a slightly upsetting week is what that movie should be called. I called it a most violent month. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That was a real letdown. But oh god, you, yeah. But but what I want to say is that the guy is so clearly obviously trying to be Sidney Lumet. But I realized while I was watching the movie that Oscar Isaac is one of the only modern American actors who would have comfortably fit in a classic Sidney Lumet movie. Absolutely, yeah. I was also sad when I would watch things like The Rise of Skywalker and see Oscar Isaac <laughs> sighing and saying, somehow the Emperor <laughs> yeah. has returned. <laughs> yeah. I was joking in the card counter. It's like, somehow John Gordo has returned. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to talk about re- the real fucking evil of Empire? It's not that crusty old bitch shooting lightning out of his fingers. It's, ma- it's the major John Gordos of the world. And you know what? Like the Rise of Skywalker, they haven't fucking gone away. They, no. We didn't even get a chance to kill these assholes for the first time. But, yeah, so Oscar Isaac, like, give this man an Oscar nomination because... Uh, you know, give Isaac the Oscar, if you will, if I can get into my tinsel town. <laughs> this is a classic American actor. Like, this is a kind of performance that you used to get routinely from people like James Caan. Yeah, definitely. So he's he's really good in this movie. And I also want to say that uh, the other two main principals in this are also excellent. Tiffany Haddish playing La Linda. La Linda, she's got jokes. She's got jokes. She gets better as the movie goes along. Um you're not quite sure whether the romance is going to actually work out in this movie. You start believing in it as the movie continues. I think so. I mean, like, she, and I, I like Tiffany Haddish a lot, but, like, you know, if, if you were looking for a quibble in this movie, her character is maybe 
the one thing that like stands out a little bit or like maybe uh, it takes takes some getting used to or it takes like a maybe a slight hurdle to clear her like understanding of like how she fits into the movie or who her character is but by the end of it I, I found the romance between them to be uh, affecting at work I like the scene where they walk through that kind of like uh, you know Mishima style like yeah. uh, like 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 a sort of um Christmas lit Christmas light lit park where like everything is in these like uh like it was it reminded me very much of like the, the what is it the the temple of the golden something the golden pavilion from Mishima like the kind of set design work that was in that movie it reminded me i said it was like they went to a garden in the tron universe because <laughs> the yeah. camera is on a on a what do you call it on a drone speaking of the war in iraq and uh it floats up over this a very artificial garden with all these LED lights. It's like really, it would be kind of abomination to to walk through visually because it's also is it in Las Vegas? It's where are they again in that part? Of, I don't think they're in Las Vegas. It's one of those other it feels very Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was Vegas. It was just like one of these other places where there are casinos in America that they go to. Could be Florida, could be could be you know Connecticut. Who knows? Like I said, like like the America of this movie is totally interchangeable. There is no real like look to any of it other than just like a boredom and bleakness at night. But this is the pure cinema moment in the card counter because we have been dealing with this beige and gray and oppressive American life, which, by the way, is the life that the Abu Ghraib war crimes were committed to defend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another really dark part of this movie. Uh, we need to also talk about the fact that this movie seems to take place in the World Poker Tour universe. Which, by the way, launched in America in the year 2002. Yeah. I think that's very significant. It's one of the big sort of American cultural products that was after the 9-11 attacks and, and as the war was starting. All of a sudden, everyone was interested in poker. Yeah. No, I... It was, I mean, in Texas, no limit hold'em poker, and I think that the Texas no limit thing was, I think, like something keyed into like the, our 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 new adoration for George W. Bush as the Texas cowboy, sort of riding herd over the bad guys, and he's willing to go all in for America and lose spectacularly. <laughs> and it, let us not forget that, he, like Oscar Isaac in this movie, his I don't know if you want to say rival. But, I mean, it's not really, like, level of an antagonist, but his rival on the World Poker Tour is a Ukrainian guy who dresses only in American flag regalia. And whenever he wins a hand, his, his sort of goons and, and entourage shout, chant, USA, USA, USA. And it's returned to again and again in this movie as this horrific dirge, this fucking, this chant of the, of the damned that, like, it, it, every, every fucking letter just cuts Oscar Isaac to his core because of what he knows it represents. Yeah, it's like, um, the, you know, this is a problem with post-9-11 uh, patriotism is how phony it is and how actually un-American it is. Right down to having a Ukrainian guy calling <laughs> yeah, yeah. himself Mr. USA. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's just like, and, and why do they chant USA? Because he won a hand and he won a round of poker and is winning money from, 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 from suckers and fucking... D- d- desperate and hopeless sitting across a fucking table at a casino and that we also find out in this movie a few little tidbits about the behind the scenes of of spectacles like the world poker tour which is that they're not even actually playing for the money that they're playing poker no for. yeah no they're, that's all for tv yeah that's all for tv the chips are just chips they've all been promised a certain amount of money 
for every level that they get to in the tournament. Yeah. So it's all bullshit. <laughs> yep. And the and, and I love the scenes in the movie where where we see Oscar Isaac walking into this giant cathedral of uh, poker players, this depressing, badly lit room full of suckers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That eventually becomes a table in the room with the four people who are left. But and it's so humiliating when Mister USA beats him. Yeah, no, like keep... once again betrayed by America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I mean, again, like, as I said, like earlier, like, wait, like Trader uses the idea of, of card games, but also like uh, gambling is this kind of stand in for the act of interrogation. And like, particularly in poker, which he makes clear is like, you're not playing against the house in poker, you're playing against the other players. And like, yeah, you have to have like, unlike blackjack, which is like the, that you can count cards in blackjack because it is just, it, it really is literally only about math to a certain degree. In poker, having a knowledge of what, you know, what cards are in play helps you with the probabilities of how you make your bet. But ultimately, what, the only, what you need to know in poker is the person sitting across from you. Mm-hmm. Like, like, that, like that's what you're gambling on. You're gambling on your, your understanding of a stranger based on them trying to give you nothing. And there's a very good bit of voiceover where, where Oscar Isaac's character explains that like a good poker player can see into your soul no matter what you could have the mirrored glasses on you could have headphones on you could be wearing a hoodie you could be wearing a fucking mask a good poker player when you sit down next to them at the table will see will see that thing that you're trying to hide will see who you are that you that even you're not aware about or that you try to hide from other people and like in you know in his past profession as and in like and the fucked up thing is that like they make it clear that like as in reality the people that they were torturing in Abu Ghraib they weren't sitting on pocket aces there was nothing that they could give them that like even if they wanted to that could have gotten them out of that situation they weren't they, they, they weren't sitting on any big secret it was no fucking like uh, uh, it was no magic trick to get anything out of them because like the, the, the things they got out of them were just stuff that they made up as you mm-hmm. would do if you were being tortured like, like yeah. that that's the, the absolute absurdity and, and, and horror of it all yeah, and the, so in a, ultimately in this movie, the poker games are as artificial as the war on terror was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. His name is is William Tell, and a tell is a key strategy for winning poker. Oh, yeah, definitely. So speaking on that, of the idea of the tell, I mean, I think like I interpret it to like a certain level that one of the reasons like Oscar Isaac says, like, you know, he learns to play poker. He learns to count cards in prison because, you know, you had eight and a half years. Like, I mean, that's what you do in prison to entertain yourself and keep track of like the days or just pass the time is through cards. Like that's how you measure. I mean, like you don't don't count hours, minutes or days. It's like you count cards, you count hands. You, that's how you measure time passing is like, you know, the deficit or, you know, uh, surplus that you've accrued in cigarettes or whatever. And I sort of like thought like one of the reasons like he is such a good poker player is like both that, you know, like his past, you know, is breaking and interrogating people, but also that like he himself doesn't have the same tells as an average person or maybe has no tells at all because he doesn't have a soul anymore. Like he's not a person anymore because mm-hmm. of the, the shit that he did. Mm-hmm. I loved also, just to get back a little bit to the Abu Ghraib part of our conversation, I thought it was very profound that the moment that destroyed Oscar Isaac's life is captured in a very offhanded way. We see a montage of him committing atrocities at Abu Ghraib, holding his prisoners up for a pose 
for a photo and smoking and then blowing the smoke in the unconscious guy's face. He, Schrader always cuts to the next shot after every camera flash. These are the incriminating photos that the whole world saw and think he's a terrible person. We don't get to see the actual incriminating photos because we don't need to. Yeah. But like, that's the difference between Oscar Isaac doing eight and a half years in a military prison and Gordo walking away scot-free is Gordo knew not to be in any of the photographs. Yeah. His grunts didn't know that. What I love about this movie too is that it was released on September 10th, 2021. Wow, right, right like like Mulholland Drive 20 years ago, right before right before, before 9 11 and right after yeah. the US pulled out of Afghanistan. And that's what I mean is like I mean like that's uh, kismet in a lot of ways. I'm sure it was perhaps slightly planned. I mean, it's not a, not the best marketing ploy for this movie in particular, but <laughs> that's what I mean about like Schrader is like one of the few American filmmakers that he's not doing like shooting crime movies about how hard it is to be a fucking troop. I mean, like that that's not the point of this movie. Yeah. Um, but like he is going like directly at the throat of like the war on terror, the war in Iraq, and what it represents to like the soul of this nation, which is. As we said earlier, we are not forgiven by God, and we don't have a soul anymore. We are, a, we are like we are a husk now because of the shit that we've done. If we ever had one to begin with, it's long gone at this point. We should talk about our third character, Kirk, spelled with a C, played by Ty <laughs> Sheridan, who's really good in this movie. He is very good too. He, uh, you know, he's the person who Oscar Isaac meets him when he sort of like wanders into the security conference, the presentation being done by his former commanding officer and, you know, living unincarcerated war criminal Willem Dafoe. And uh, Ty Sheridan's character sees him there and recognizes him. And he's like, let's meet up later. We have something to talk about. And it's revealed that Kirk is the, the son of one of the men that Oscar Isaac served with at Abu Ghraib, who has, you know, since coming home from the war, uh, become an alcoholic, um, beat both his son and his wife before the mother, you know, just leaves because she can't take it anymore, and then ultimately commits suicide and kills himself. And that Ty Sheridan's character has become obsessed with the Abu Ghraib case and with Willem Dafoe as like the object, like he is the Travis Bickle, like he is he is the character that is imagining for himself this act of violent retribution. And he explains to Oscar Isaac, he's like, I thought you might be interested in this because this guy fucked you over the same way he did me and my father and like turned my life into hell. And, you know, has faced no consequences for it. So I'm going to kidnap, torture, and murder him. And Oscar Isaac sees in him, like, obviously a kindred spirit in that he's like, I spent lots of hours fantasizing about the same thing, but he wants to save him from, like, the same fate that he's wound up at. And, and he, wants, he wants him to, like, to show him what his life is like. And he wants to give him the chance and win money and basically give him the money so that he can go back to college and forgive his mother and have, like, a normal life away from, like, not forever tainted by this evil. And, um... And yeah, like, it's funny because like he, he tries to like talk it out with him. Like, you know, so what exactly is your plan? And he's like, I don't know. We'll shoot him with a dart gun. And it's just like, it's so clear he doesn't have any idea what he's doing. But yeah, like he, he is the Travis Bickle character of this movie. He has this fantasy of violent retribution and like sort of and self-renewal and ultimately self-negation that like he's like, I, he's like, he's like, I dropped out of college. Like nothing matters. I just want to kill and torture this asshole because if I don't do it, no one else will. But isn't this a relatable person? Like, don't you yeah, think absolutely. that these people are all over America? These, like, uh, you know, directionless young men, right? Uh, you know, he he's on his way to destroying his own life. 
And like a lot of Schrader movies, the main character uh, sees a, a possibility of his own redemption through the rescue of an innocent. Yeah. And like, I think there's, there's, a, there's a line he says in it towards the end of the movie, Oscar Isaac's character in his voiceover in his diary, where he says, the feeling of forgiving yourself and being forgiven by another person is functionally the same. It feels the same way. It, it achieves the same effect. And it's like, this is what he, he, he sees in Kirk, a chance to forgive someone else, to forgive himself. He sees a chance at redemption. And like, that is why he agrees. Like, cause he, you know, in the beginning of the movie, he eschews anything like the world, the professional poker circuit or the world series of poker or being staked by anyone because he just, he doesn't want any connections to anyone. He doesn't want any weight. He doesn't want any debt more than what he's already accrued on himself. But like the reason he says yes to this is that he wants he wants to and does give all of his money to this guy Kirk to just give him one chance not to destroy his life. That's dude's rock, though, dude. <laughs> yeah, yes. Let's talk about the dude's rock components of this. First of all, it's very key in a dude's rock relationship is that these two guys meet each other and then the kid says, "Here's my phone number. Give me a call." And then at like two in the morning. Oscar Isaac uh, calls the guy and says, meet me in the bar downstairs. And uh, they have a, a, a drink together at 2.30 in the morning. That is what dudes do. You get up at 2.30 in the morning and meet your dude if he needs you. <laughs> and then, you know, like uh, uh, they go on the road together and Oscar Isaac sort of, yeah, I mean, he gives him some game. Like he sort of like hips him to like his own life and hips him to like gambling. But I mean, also, and he also tells him the truth that about about his father essentially mm -hmm. and that another dude's rock moment is when he goes to visit uh kirk's hotel room and you op opens the door in the place he's probably only been there for two days but it already looks like a bomb went off in it it looks like there's like takeout containers everywhere and then oscar isaac opens up the curtains and we see that it's probably like 11 30 in the morning or something i thought it was like four in the morning and no no when he first goes into kirk's hotel room he says he says uh you live like this it's like the classic damn bitch you live like this meme and then at the very end in which he lets Kirk into his fucking even more insane hotel room with sheets covering everything. Kirk says, you live like this? Yeah. This is a super important Dude's Rock moment is when, uh, in the third act, when it looks like Oscar Isaac is going to actually torture Kirk. Yep. Dramatizations are very important in this film and are also very important for the catharsis that's sought by the protagonist. These poker games are dramatizations. What he does to Kirk is a dramatization where he actually uh, ties him up and looks like he's got information on Kirk. That's what we think is that Oscar Isaac's figured out that uh, Kirk's pulling some kind of a scam. But as it turns out, he wants to fulfill a deal that they made earlier in the film, which was talk to your mother. And if you talk to your mother, I'll go and get laid, <laughs> which is important dudes rock uh, like cementing of a dude's rock friendship is like helping your boy and your boy helps you and also um essentially having sex with each other through via proxy yeah <laughs> via an unrelated uh, third party you know woman in this case but you know that's just that's just to make it legit but yeah like i mean this movie is about and and at the end with willem dafoe what does he say to him he says we're going to do a historical reenactment you yeah. and i 
Yeah. And the scene with Ty Sheridan where he like he basically like I mean he scares the shit out of him. It's a real scared straight moment. He puts on the latex gloves. He's got a bag with fucking tools in it and he's like yeah. he gives him like he he interrogates him. He does the thing to him that like he'd only been alluding to the entire movie and he's like he's like if you really want to know like th- th- this is the truth of it. And he mm-hmm. like he attempts he attempts to scare him into just being like I'm giving you all this money. Call your mother, go back to college. And like that's all you if you if you do that like we're we're straight you don't owe me anything but if you fuck it up and you don't do this then like I'm gonna finish out this historical reenactment and you're gonna see what this really this shit is really about unfortunately a, that doesn't work <laughs> no sadly enough but this is also a very important uh, uh, obstacle in Tell's uh, ability to forgive himself is that he puts an, a human being through the process that he went to prison for and why he could conceivably even go to hell to save him. He frees a prisoner, which he was never able to do in the army, which I thought I was surprised because that scene looked a little bonkers as it started. Like it didn't, I didn't understand the motivation for it, but then all of a sudden the clouds lifted when he finally said, here's the money. Here's even more money. You have to do this or else. It was like tough love, but it was also you realize that he did all this for someone. He finally um, sacrificed his own time and his own energy to rescue someone. Yeah, and like you said, you're right. Like he he frees a prisoner. I mean, this is someone who is sitting across from him. Like you know, so so much of this movie is about people sitting across from each other and trying to divine, you know, the truth of their soul, either either yourself or your opponent or your prisoner. And, um, yeah, he has someone completely under his thumb. And what does he do? Like, not only does he give him all his money, but he lets him go. He doesn't torture him. He, he doesn't follow through on the thing that he's trained to do and been ordered to do. And that he's kind of ordered himself to do in this case is like to, to yeah, to, to free a prisoner. And he's now also given himself permission to uh, go kiss Tiffany Haddish. <laughs> yeah. Which he should have done, like, in real three. <laughs> <laughs> he should have done that 40 minutes ago in the movie. So, so yeah, I thought it was profoundly moving. It was like um, the way that... Uh, and then continuing on with the dramatization, yes, he goes to Gordo's house because the kid fucks up. Like, the kid takes off uh, and basically breaks the promise that he made to tell and goes to go do Gordo to finish Gordo off. Gordo winds up killing him in self-defense. But now uh, tell goes over to Defoe's house. And I love the scene where Defoe comes home <laughs> and walks into his house and finds that the whole place has been done up the way that uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. William Tell does his uh, hotel room. All the furniture is covered in white blankets <laughs> twine, and twine. And, uh, and he says, you have a choice. I can kill you now. Or you and I can go into the next room and we're going to do a little uh, dramatic reenactment of our time in Abu Ghraib. And now, uh, this is not shown. None of it is shown. You, you hear the agony in the other room, but you only, it, only, it only fixates on the, the sheet-covered sort of negative space. But it's clear, like, at the end, like, Oscar Isaac kills Willem Dafoe, but he's also been tortured himself. It's not that, like, he, he can't just take pure revenge and just torture this man. Because, like, they're, 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 yeah. yeah, no, like, like, he has to be tortured himself because, like, the, 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 there's a line in the movie, I think, where he says, like, you know, how does one determine the limits of punishment? 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how to, like, how does one decide, like, when, when someone has been punished enough or what, what is a just punishment? And for himself, that's obviously an open question. And I thought, like, that, I mean, there's a scene in the movie that's a flashback to uh, when his time in prison where he just starts fucking with this guy and, like, taking food off his tray in the cafeteria or whatever and just yeah. clearly antagonizes this guy into just beating the shit out of him. And he's like, I often wonder if that guy's still alive or if he's around or if I could contact him to finish the job. And I almost thought at the end that like he was basically going to let Willem Dafoe torture him to death and kill him. And I mean, like, it, I mean, it could have gone that way, but I mean, like, it, like he comes out and he's bloodied and mangled as well. So it's just, it's not so simple an act as, of just pure revenge or righteous justice. It has to be like, it has to be meted out on him equally along with Willem Dafoe. It's Calvinism, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Isaac walks out of the room uh, to call 911, and it looks like two of his fingers are basically uh, busted. Yeah. That was the f- the detail that I fixated on. It looked like he actually had two fingers nearly removed yeah. in that fight. Uh, we see his hand again in another scene afterwards, and I was actually wondering whether or not he was going to have to have those fingers amputated. They look so badly mangled. But I think that it was brilliant of Schrader not to show us any of the of the fight. Because, like, I mean, he already showed you it. He already showed you yeah. it in, in the fucking the hell scene. And there's, like, yeah. there's, two, there's two sequences of that. Like, he's already shown it to you. There's that uh, second flashback in the Abu Ghraib uh, nightmare stuff where uh, the, the Defoe and the other soldier have, they don't look human. Like, they're all squeezed down. Yeah, they're all squat. Did you see that video that Bolsonaro put up when he was in the hospital <laughs> that looked like that? <laughs> yes, yes. It, was, it very much reminded me of that. All I could think of in that scene was that weird fucked up Bolsonaro video, which, of course, <laughs> is not wrong. The end of the movie, uh, Oscar Isaac's now back in jail, although I'm not sure why he's in a military prison again if he yeah, that was a, a question, civilian yeah, contract. That was a question I had. He's back at the same, like, at Leavenworth or whatever, and it's like he's no longer in the military, and he just did straight-up felony murder <laughs> just as a citizen of the country. I don't think he would be back in military prison, but, you know. Whatever. We'll let it good. go. Yeah. Um, and it, I thought it was a beautiful ending and a, a beautiful technique of an ending where, where La Linda comes to see him in jail. And just like the end of Pickpocket and just like the end of several Paul Schrader movies, the movie ends with the two of them holding hands. But at this time in the movie, it's the, their two fingers touching the glass that separates them. And like you don't really know whether like it, like he's like the, the frame has been frozen or it's static or whether it's just like it, it is, they're just filming two fingers touching in between glass. It's in slow motion, but if you stare at it long enough, you realize that it's, yeah, it's a not, shot. It's not it's, a freeze it's not frame. A, it's not a freeze frame. It is a shot. It's just and, held. And it's a shot that is held. And I just thought of just Isaac and well, or their hand doubles just standing there <laughs> touching glass for four <laughs> minutes. But just I, scrolling on your phone with the other one, just like, okay, I got the shot. All right. <laughs> but I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful ending. Um, a very hopeful ending. Uh, for Schrader, this felt like a vaguely positive conclusion in some ways. Yeah, because I mean, like, because uh, they still, I mean, like, these are two people who still care about each other and that, like, that, that Oscar Isaac's character has connected with another human being. And he, he has something to live for. There's like, there's, there, there's something decent in his life. I want to touch uh, base with you about this incredible Facebook post that Schrader wrote. The movie had to stop production because of the pandemic and, and, Schrader wrote on Facebook, 
Production halted five days before rap by my pussified producers. <laughs> because an L.A. day player had the coronavirus. Myself, I would have shot through hellfire rain to complete the film. I'm old and asthmatic. What better way to die than on the job? <laughs> I mean, like, he's like all his main characters. I mean, he wants to punish himself. That's why he keeps posting on Facebook. He wants to be punished. About a month before the movie came out, uh, on the day of the bombshell report that accused uh, your governor, Andrew Cuomo, of misconduct and harassment of female staffers, <laughs> Schrader offered up this helpful query on Facebook. He wrote, is it really so hard to keep from touching attractive women in your presence if they work for you? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> the evidence seems conclusive, but it can be done. Does Natasha Kinski have Facebook? I'd like to hear her thoughts on this. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. famously, I mean, uh, her, her hilarious comments, she goes, what is it like he wanted to marry her? And then yeah. she just goes, Paul, I sleep with all my directors and you were particularly difficult. <laughs> you know, it was funny is that Tiffany Haddish apparently kept tormenting Paul Schrader because she wants him to make Cat People 2 starring her. <laughs> yes, please do. Please <laughs> so, do. So he was uh, the, getting the really other... frustrated that she kept talking about Cat People with him uh, while they were making the movie. Um uh, Cat People, by the way, uh, I mean, it's it's sort of the, the odd movie out, and it, it's not really about the same themes we've been talking about, but it is, and it's it one of the, if you want to see a movie that achieves cocaine madness on yeah. film, <laughs> Cat People is it. Yeah. Cat People is all the way there. It's fucking great. I love Cat People so much. But the other really funny Paul Schrader card counter Facebook post is that he originally, he was like, he wanted Kevin Spacey to be the lead in the card counter. And he had another Facebook post where he was like, hasn't this guy suffered enough? Like, did he do anything that was that bad? Are we going to keep punishing this guy forever when he can't make a movie again? I'd love to work with him. <laughs> right after he wrote the tweet about how, you know, you could conceivably touch attractive women if they work for you. Then like three hours later, he posted on Facebook, Focus Features has asked me to chill on Facebook for a month. <laughs> No problem. See you on the other side. Card counter <laughs> open September 10th. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, A24 was in their uh their uh Oscar season uh mentality for First Reformed when he said, "Why can't I cast Kevin Spacey in my next movie?" <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like, "Bye everybody," like a Poochie <laughs> style. <laughs> like yeah. Suddenly disappears. I'll, I'll put the link in the show description of the Twitter account Paul's Posts, which gives you pretty much everything that Schrader has to say. The The pinned tweet is, Schrader wrote, I enter unwashed into a world that disrespects me and despises my values. <laughs> <laughs> which is total drill. That's a yeah. drill tweet for yeah. sure. But, but I mean, the, would you want anything else from a great artist? No. You know? Yeah, God no. My favorite Paul Schrader tweet of recent vintage was this summer when he wrote in all caps, in your mind, who are the three hottest, most talented Asian, brackets, <laughs> Japanese, Chinese, Korean, in that order, close brackets, actresses age 30 to 35 <laughs> now working. <laughs> Schrader is what we would call a rice king. Do you know the term rice king? I don't think so. That's white guys who uh, are obsessed with Asian women. Okay, I get it. 
Have you seen the incredible music video that Schrader did for Bob Dylan's song Tight Connection that he shot in Tokyo? No, I did not. I'll put that in the show description too. <laughs> yeah, Paul Schrader directed a video for Bob Dylan's Empire Burlesque album while he was making Mishima. And it's an insane music video with Bob Dylan looking very confused walking around Tokyo. I'll check that out. So good. But yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Schrader and uh, it was a pleasure to... Uh, get caught up on these films uh, a couple that I hadn't seen and uh, and to see the card counter which right now stands as the best movie of 2021 I don't know if anyone's going to top it I would say uh, have you seen Writers of Justice yet no not yet that's okay. the Mads Mikkelsen oh yeah Okay, th- that to me is my, I'll be shocked if I see a better movie this year than Writers of Justice card counter is definitely up there but I will just say see Writers of Justice Oh, and one other Paul Schrader, uh, amazing Paul Schrader Facebook post. He wrote in March of 2019, I watched First Reformed again tonight. I can find no fault with the film. I'm stunned by the fact that I accomplished such a thing. I agree. Hats off. Hats off to the lad. He still got it. He's, I mean, it's just, it's inspiring to like see a guy like, because, you know, he, he had some, he had some, had some, had some doldrums in his career, but like he's, Fucking, uh, I don't know how old he is now, but man, like 75, 75, but he's still got that gas. He's still throwing heat out there. I mean, and, and not only, not only that, but like faster than maybe he's ever thrown in his career with first reformed in the card counter. Like he's throwing fucking gas across the plate. And I just, I, I find that very inspiring and he just doesn't give a fuck. He just doesn't give a fuck, which I love. Will, did you uh, give two shits about the Canadian election results? Did, uh, not did, really. <laughs> did, the, did the Canadian election uh, cross your mind at all? Uh, the guy who breathes through his balls lost. Yeah. So that, that was the only thing I clocked, but it just seemed like, you know, uh, just Trudeau back in power, minority government. I mean, I, no, it really did not register much of the... I was very disappointed that there were only 950 seamen retention soldiers in St. John, Newfoundland. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess like the, the was it like the, the PPC party didn't win a single seat or whatever. No. And they're all they're all they're all crying like, you know, obviously uh, fraud as a result yeah. of that. You know, I think uh, I think Paul Schrader should make a movie about seamen retention warriors or a seamen <laughs> retention warrior. I mean, honestly, Oscar Isaac is kind of a Valsell for most of this movie. So, I mean, he's like, he's already, he's already dealing. I mean, like I said, like all his movies are about the same thing, but he just like, he needs to make another movie about um, breathing through your testicles and never coming. I would love the diary entry of uh, Nikula Das. I would love to read his diary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Day 240, still haven't jacked off. <laughs> I, I feel that the change is coming in me. I don't even look at my penis anymore. <laughs> Oh, and the other amazing thing about Nikula Das is that he, uh, he, they did a story about him, Mr. Balt, breathing through your balls, and he said that they were trying to discredit him because he was a threat to the, uh, you know, to the establishment. Meanwhile, his Twitter uh, bio says that he's a semen retention soldier. <laughs> well, of course, the media would focus on that. Uh, can you recommend a, a, a favorite Schrader that we may not have talked about on this show? Uh, we still see. We talked about autofocus. We did bring up cat people at the end, which I highly recommend. It's 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 sort of the odd one out, but it's like it's it's 
Wow, a lot of psychology in that movie, too. Uh, just pure cocaine madness. Mishima, obviously. Um, and the Walker, uh, I'll throw that one out there. I mentioned that briefly. Again, a good companion piece with uh, the card counter. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm probably probably not think oh patty hearst we mentioned that as well that's a good uh, one yeah they're they're, they're 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 all they're all fire i'll recommend the comfort of strangers the film that takes place in venice that schrader made uh, sort of on his downward slide with an all-timer performance by christopher walken as a uh, gentleman who uh, constantly talks about men and and the glory of men and he always talks about his father's black mustache uh, he's not a very nice person, as it turns out at the end of the movie, but he has tons of incredible actors' monologues. And if you're a huge Walken head, you have to see this movie. Anything uh, anything our listeners should know about what's what's going on? You had an all-star week this week on Chapo. Yeah, fucking uh, just stacked with interviews. We got to go, we got some more we got some more fun stuff to come. So watch this space at Wilmenicker, and I think I'm a. Uh... Uh, Will Menneker on Letterbox or Cody Dad four twenty on Letterbox. I don't oh, know. Yeah. Check, me out, check me out on Letterbox if you want to. If you want, if you want tips and tricks on cultivating movie mindset in your own self and being. Yes, you inspired me actually to put together a an inarguable dudes rock canon. Uh, you may have a dudes rock canon going yourself, but uh, there are absolutely no mistakes on my dudes rock list. So please check it out. <laughs> I don't make mistakes when it comes to this subject. It's in, it's yeah, it's endorsed and co-signed by yours truly. <laughs> Will, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, Absolutely. We'll, you name the topic and we'll, and please come back. Always a joy. Thanks for having me on. Before we go, I just wanted to remind the listeners that we do have a junk filter Patreon. We've had some spectacular guests for our bonus episodes, including Jared Yates Sexton, David Roth, Jacob Bacharach, Suze Kempner, Will Sloan, and many more. You can sign up at patreon.com slash junkfilter. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>